knows? We're going to be in Revelation 2 tonight, so please open up your Bibles to there so we can read this together. Revelation 2. Oh yeah, it's still in my office, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 2 is what we'll be. So once again, we're dealing with a message to a specific church in which the Apostle John was known. And you'll notice that there's a similarity to the message at this particular church as to the one that there was in Smyrna. But a very important difference changes everything, changes the tone of the whole uh, message as well, too. So let's read our passage, then we'll, be, we'll pray asking God's blessing. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 12 in Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, or Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden mana, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your blessing as we open up your word together, and we pray that you would give us understanding, that from it you would help us to love and cherish and adore you more, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that you would help us to be wise according to what your word says, not according to what the world thinks is wisdom, but according to what your word says is true and right. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this really could actually just be a letter from Jesus to any, uh, any many or any average evangelical church today. So much of what passes off as Christianity, what claims to be the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, looks nothing like or looks like a deformity of that once and for all delivered faith. Uh, by the way, um, last week the question was asked about the religion we call Judaism. When did it start to be called that? Uh, think, thinking of that because you know, even the concept we're dealing with tonight of, of Christianity that doesn't look like a actual Christianity. Well, Judaism is kind of that in a way. Uh, anyways, the answer to that question is that depending on the time period before uh, Judaism was officially known, it probably just would have been referred to as, um, you know, the religion of Yahweh or, or simply Adonai or the God of Abraham, Jacob and Isaac. And we know Christianity simply went by the way, according to Acts 24, 14 for a time. And followers of Christ were first called Christians in the city of Antioch, as recorded also according to Acts. But when did Judaism become identified with people who reject Christianity and who still consider themselves in a covenant with God through Abraham, David, and Moses especially? Well, it turns out that was probably in a time span of development, and therefore a range is suggested. So from about 400 BC to 70 AD, 70 AD makes a lot of sense, of course. That's when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome, uh, signifying the end of the Old Covenant, and a clear distinction from Christianity at that point. Christianity would be firmly established as the New Covenant at that juncture, the time of transition, B 
being done from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But that said, it wouldn't take long for there to be another kind of transition taking place in Christianity as well. One which is a hallmark, and it's probably a bad word for it really, but one that is sadly common for the church of the Lord Jesus in between his first and second coming. Uh, There are many churches over the course of history, there are many churches operating today which are similar in description, which have similar issues before them and a similar witness in the world as the church in Pergamum. This church in Pergamum is going through a transition, as it were. And so if you look at the text with the familiar formula, if you're thinking of, of an outline, there's a call back to the description of the Son of God in chapter 1, which is telling us something specific about the Son of God's relation to the church in this time. Then there is his knowledge of the church with a, a commendation for it. And then there's also a critique this time. And close to the section, or we close to the section, the end of the section, deals with a warning and a promise. Now, Pergamum is another city of historical significance. It's located north of Smyrna. So if you're looking on a map, you have Ephesus down the bottom. Then up to the right a little bit is Smyrna. And then continuing up north would be Pergamum. Uh, it's, it's not on the coast, though. It's located about 15 miles off the coast. And it's built on an elevated piece of land that looked down on the regions below, not only physically, but also because it was very distinguished in comparison to other cities, especially those that are, that are close to it. Pergamon was the official capital of the Roman province of of Asia Minor, and had a library, a massive library that at that time in the world was matched only by the library in Alexandria, Egypt. They had 200,000 books in in this library in the city in Pergamon. Plus it had all these massive temples. There was a temple for Dionysus, for Athena, and for Asclepius. And there was a massive altar to Zeus, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. As Denny Burke notes, uh, it was a city steeped in pagan religion, and it was a city that was tight with Rome. Uh, Pergamum, or Pergamos in the Greek, was the official center for worship of the emperor. Even before emperor worship really existed and was started by Domitian around 90 AD, a temple was dedicated there in Pergamum to a living Caesar in 29 BC. It was uh, Caesar Augustus at that time. And so there's a lot of outside pressure on the church here in Pergamum. There is pressure from the world upon this congregation, and every church and every age is going to feel that pressure. That, of course, is part of what is implied here. All these seven churches represent the kinds of things the body of Christ will go through in this age as we reign with Christ and spread the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. So first, we have that call back to a description of Jesus from chapter 1. This time it's a quote from uh, verse 16, and it says, It's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's repeated again, or it's referred to a second time in our section. It's mentioned again in 2.16. And there it mentions it's the sword of his mouth, in which 2.12 does not mention, right? uh, Verse 2.12 just said it's a sharp double-edged sword. Verse 2.16 says it's a sword coming from his mouth. But you put 2.12 and 2.16 together, and it's the exact formula from chapter 1, verse 16. There it's, it's from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And so what do you do with a sword? What's a, what's a sword for? Cutting down. <laughs> that was like a stabbing motion, a killing motion. Like a Roman sword, a sharp two-edged Samurai swords are one-sided. Come on, everyone knows that. I know. I know. Um, Separating things. It's it's is it an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? 
But it, what is it really? Mostly. It's offense. You can do defense with it, but it's really an offensive weapon. Right, that's why they have the shield. It really, it's meant to kill. Look at what verse 16 says. We'll get to the reasoning here in a moment. It says, repent. You know, a hard stop after that. Stop doing or stop allowing these things to go on in your midst. We'll consider what they were doing soon. But notice the warning. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them. So not everyone. And then with the war, when he wars against them, it's this you know, sword that comes from his mouth. So not everyone, though. Christ isn't coming against everyone in the church this way, but against those who are guilty of the sin that he addresses. But regardless, this is still a message to a church. And that tells us something, I would think. This message is going to the church in general, but not everyone in it is guilty of the charges he levels against it. But in a sense, this judgment is still coming against the church. If you notice, it's specific. He says, I will come to see you soon and war against them with the sword. So them, not against the whole church, but them, the ones who are guilty of the sins that he mentions before that, which we'll consider in just a moment. But in a sense, this judgment is still coming against the church. And so even though the text lets us know that this war, which will come soon from Christ Jesus, is against a specific group, the them of the text, that them is seeing themselves as part of the church. That them doesn't really realize that they're a them, is what I'm trying to say. They think of themselves as part of the body, part of the congregation. And so this is judgment on the church. This is judgment on a church who is compromising. That has, that has compromised and is condoning compromise. It's only been 20 years since the temple was destroyed. And now, and so it's 20 years since when we would have a start to Judaism or it was officially and firmly recognized. It's only been 20 years since there was a distinction between Judaism and Christianity firmly put into the minds of the people. And then within 20 years from that, from 70 AD, 90 AD, even there are deformities within what Christianity should be. There's a, the people who claim to uh, worship Yahweh, but are stuck in dead worship in Judaism. And at the same time, there are people who claim to worship Yahweh who are in Christianity and seem to not actually be worshiping Yahweh as well, too. And so the church transition is already something wrong, something that requires the judgment of Christ Jesus. And Jesus isn't going to let his church be corrupted. Certainly, he'll purify his bride at the end of the age. We'll deal with that in this book at a later time. But even in time, his judgment can come, can come upon a church. Uh, I mean, we might think of it this way even. Is there a Christian church in Pergamum right now? And there's not. There's not even really a Pergamum, to be fair. But he can bring to bear the sword of his mouth upon a people. And that might simply look like giving them over to their sin, to the hardening of their heart to such a, to such a degree that even though they profess Christ, they look nothing like the bride of Christ revealed in Scripture. And how so many called churches uh, that we even have today look like that. In the worst examples, you have whole denominations that have departed from the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. You have whole denominations of so-called professing Christians that have compromised with the world that have done so, so much that they don't even look like a biblical Christianity. And so this reality should be a surprise to us. This is what happens in this age. Every church needs to be on the alert for compromising and having worldly influences impact us. What happens is these worldly influences impact us from the outside. They come inside the church, and then from inside the church, it corrupts the whole rest of the church. When the church doesn't do church discipline, 
and rid itself of those kinds of things. We've already talked about that in Ephesus even. But consider 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. <clears throat> that says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, latter times simply means the times that we're in, the time that the church in Pergamum was in, the latter times, the last times, meaning there's no other covenant going to be made. All that we await now in our time period, all that Christians in Pergamum were awaiting, it was the latter time for them too. All they're waiting for is for Christ to consummate his kingdom. And so it's that time in between Jesus' first and second coming. So in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So corruption within the church, compromise within the church, believing things that the church shouldn't believe and practice. Or Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, there it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Again, the church, the bride, compromises, there's, it, false doctrine is allowed in, and what was supposed to be a pure church, a, a church that is under the word and authority and submission to God, becomes essentially a synagogue of Satan, uh, what we talked about last week uh, in the situation with Smyrna. The Apostle Paul issued a similar warning to the Ephesian church when he was leaving them. This is Acts 20, 20-30. We read this, if you remember, right before we sang earlier tonight. But in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to the elders. He says, In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. So I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own, from your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So first wolves is not meaning four-legged wolves. He's talking about false teachers. False teachers will come in. He even says from yourself. So out from among the church, corruption from within will come in and lead away people. And because this is all, all that is true, because it's all the case, we need to ever be aware of what our lives are like and what our doctrine is. The Apostle Paul instructed the evangelist Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely because in it you will save yourself and your hearers. And hopefully you know what he means by that. He's not teaching some sort of like works righteousness. He's not teaching that, oh, if you have good doctrine, then you are going to save somebody else. That's not what he's saying. I can see how it sounds like that. What he's, because that's not a, a gospel of self-preservation. is no gospel at all. Uh, he's saying that what a person who already... He's describing what a person who already has been saved will do. He's saying that the person who has been chosen in Christ and is born again, that is the kind of person who watches his life and his doctrine closely, or, the, you know, or she who watches her life and doctrine closely. The person who has been washed by the blood of Jesus, whose faith is in Christ and hears the voice of Jesus and the word of God and believes him, who is resting in him, who is yoked with Christ and given the righteousness of Christ, he or she doesn't let worldly compromise come in. And if it does come in, even to their own lives personally, 
there is repentance. And if it comes into the church, and they notice it and they confront it and they urge repentance. And that might be why the scriptures refer to this sword from the mouth of Jesus as a double-edged sword. There's two sides to it. When Christ comes to make war, there's certainly a side that cuts. But there's also a side that cures. We've talked about this before at length, so I won't go into much detail now. But God uses the warnings of scripture as a means to preserve his saints. In other words, some read the warnings like we have in 2.12 and in 2.16. They pay no attention to it at all. Just skim right over it. It just, you know, it doesn't let them, it doesn't affect them at all. They just go on and continue on in their wickedness. It's in one ear and out the other. There's a hardening of the heart in those cases. But those who truly believe Christ, those who truly belong to Christ, these warnings come and they discipline us. They bring us to repentance. They correct us. It cures us, if you will. And so Hebrews 4.12 says, for the for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus knows his people. And if the word of God causes you to say, hey, I'm, I'm guilty of this thing that the Lord is warning with in a judgment, I've been compromised. If you think of it in this context, I've been compromising. And that grieves you. If it causes godly sorrow to dwell up in you, then you need to just repent of your sin and in that conquer through Christ with through Christ with the grace that he supplies, which is what verse 17 says. So this congregation has Christ coming in judgment, but that's not all. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So a few interesting things here, here at play. There is a commendation and approval that the Lord mentions before giving the critique. Um, he first praises them for their faithfulness. This is similar to what we read with the Church of Smyrna, if you remember that from last week. Uh, Pergamum is living amidst persecution and martyrdom as well. We don't know much about this person named Antipas, only that it would appear that this is a real person. This isn't a figurative person. Perhaps he was one of the pastors in the church in Pergamum. We don't really know for sure. Could be just a regular lay person. But this is only the third martyr that we know by of name in all of the New Testament. We definitely know that you know all the apostles were martyred and things like that, but their deaths aren't recorded in the New Testament. There's only three people who are who were given their name for being martyred in the New Testament. There's Stephen, there's James, and now also Antipas. And Antipas stands out a bit because, as both Ian Paul and Joel Beakey point out in their commentaries, the description that he has for him is a description that is given to Christ Jesus himself back in the opening of this letter. That Christ himself, that Jesus himself, is the faithful witness, according to what Revelation 1.5 says. Now, what does that mean here in this context? Well, I, I think that it's helping us to understand a bit what it means when Revelation chapter 1 also said that Christ Jesus is walking among his, these lampstands, among his churches. We are identified with Christ in suffering. We are united to Christ through faith that he supplies to us. And as we live our lives faithfully, it is a life shared in Christ for his glory and by his strength. Bless you. So you guys, as you traverse, as you go through this world, 
and all, and you have all these decisions before you. Who will you marry? Where will you work and live? Should you be involved in this or that? Should you have joy? Should you have trouble? Even the kind of trouble that would lead to persecution and death. We should be confident that Christ is with us in all of those things. He is the head of the church. The church, of course, is his bride. and His spirit dwells in each of us as a seal of the inheritance that he won for us. And so we should have confidence that Christ will lead us into doing what is right. When believers get in trouble, it's when they get themselves into situations and they decide to do things without considering Christ, who he is, without considering how being involved with this or that will impact their walk with Christ. Because we know that we have that promise that even if the Lord takes us in a path that requires suffering, he'll be there with us. Antipas is the faithful witness, the same sort of a witness that Jesus Christ was. And sometimes you may have to walk your own path. And these warnings in Scripture are here to warn you to get back on the right path, as it were. You have to seek Christ, to consider doing this or doing that, how it will impact uh, your walk for, with Christ, how it will glorify Him or not glorify Him. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, my point is that you need to be considering your choices and actions and what they mean for your relationship with Christ. Because again, even think of Antipas here. I'm sure that he had the option to renounce Christ. I'm sure that he had the choice to deny the faith. And yet he didn't do it. How easy would it have been for him to just deny the faith? He may still have been alive when this letter was written by John. Truly though, even though he's a faithful witness, he was martyred, he is alive. And the second death couldn't end him because Christ was with him. And the church in general did not deny the faith in this regard, even when a faithful one was killed. And this is to their praise, and Christ Jesus leads with this as he you know, gives a specific instruction to them. But there's something else in this verse that's interesting. It's a bit confusing, really, in this passage. Something that the commentaries in Revelation are kind of all over the place on, and that is that Pergamum is a place where Satan's throne dwells. It's where Satan's throne, his throne is. It's a place where Satan dwells. Now we'll see later in this book, in Revelation chapter 20, that we should rightly understand that Satan is bound in this time period in between Christ's first and second coming, this period we know as the millennium. That doesn't mean he's unable to do anything, though. It just means that the gospel is spreading to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Satan's blinding influence on them is restricted, and the elect will be called out of every corner of the world. But this place in Pergamum is called by Jesus, Satan's throne. It's the place where he dwells. But what exactly does that mean? Now, some point out that it's in reference to the paganism that took place here. There's that giant altar of Zeus. I mean, this, again, it was a, one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's, it's massive. It has these gigantic legs. Some people call it a throne, but it doesn't really look like a throne. There was the worship of Asclepius that was especially prominent here. It was the main place of Asclepius of Asclepius worship, and they believe that this deity was in charge of healing. You know that symbol that you see like on ambulances? Um, it's the, or that's the symbol or the idol that they would use to represent this deity, Asclepius. It's, it's familiar to us today. It's that um, pole with the serpent on it. I thought that was in reference to that scene in Exodus. In Exodus with our numbers, you mean? Yeah. With Moses? I know, I thought that too. It's actually... The medical symbol is a picture of the Greek god Asclepius. But it's interesting that they have something similar 
to that numbers reference as well. Um, Joel Bickey and William Hendrickson, they land here um, the same place, saying that there's a high level of paganism celebrated here in Pergamum is the reason why Jesus calls this place the throne of Satan. Other commentators like J.K. or G.K. Beale point to the emperor worship that was prevalent here, especially as that is going to be John's familiar judgment on the state, that the state is the beast who's this agent of the devil. Both are credible choices, I think. I'm not sure that we need to be dogmatic either way. I mean, for one, paganism, uh, the worship of a false god, and the tyrannical state that seeks to usurp God, all of it is demonic after all. Right? All of it, in that sense, could be understood as the throne of Satan. So whatever of those is right, I don't know that we need to be dogmatic. Perhaps it's all of it all together. Then in verse 14 and 15, we see the problem for Pergamum and the reason for Christ coming to make war against them. 14 starts, but I have this, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, or again, Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this is the compromise of the congregation. This is the deadly poison that has infected the congregation that is being condoned and permitted by those who are faithful among them. There is false teaching running through the church in such a way that they are living evil as well, that their practices are evil and not pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. Balaam or Balaam is mentioned in the Nicolaitans as well. The Ephesian church hated their works, remember? We read that they, the Ephesian church hated the works of the Nicolaitans. We read that in chapter 2 earlier. We read of the other name, um, belong back in Numbers 22 to 25 and in 31. You probably remember him. He's a, it's a well-known like Sunday school story. He's the reluctant prophet who the donkey spoke to. Remember that story maybe, hopefully? He ends up not cursing Israel. There's this evil king named Balak, and he wants Balaam or Balaam to curse Israel, but he won't do it. He, he rejects him three times. But then, unfortunately... He ends up, Balaam that is, ends up leading Israel into sexual immorality. And Christ has these things against them. These sins which are common to the Nicolaitans and to this area of Balaam. Uh, they are eating food, sacrificed to idols, and practicing sexual immorality. That sounds a lot like Corinth, right? If you remember we went through, we went through Corinthians, 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. Those same things are mentioned in the congregation in Corinth. They had the same issues, the food issue. It was a stumbling block to some, causing some to end up worshiping the false gods that the food was offered to. And so we, we should assume, I think, that the same thing is happening here. And often these false gods were worshipped through sexual immorality too. They were living a sexually deviant lifestyle. The marriage bed was defiled. Get me wrong, sex is a wonderful thing. It's a gift from the Lord, not only for the making of babies, but for pleasure and enjoyment. When it, when it is engaged in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. But as it is with paganism and idol worship, sexual immorality often plays a big role in it. Why do you think, by the way, that our culture is so engrossed with sexual immorality? In many ways, we are just as pagan as this culture that Pergamum was in. Por pornography is rampant online. Social media is infested with it. So many of our movies and our TV shows just treat it as entertainment. Even with clothes, or I should say the lack of clothes that people find acceptable today is shocking. 
it should be shocking to us at least. Uh, even on social media and online, things that aren't properly pornography are still end up being sexually deviant. And, and they're meant to entice the flesh. Women and men are nearly naked, accentuating their bodies and moving and dancing in such a way to entice you, to capture the lust of the eyes. And young men don't fall for it. Just turn it off. Just delete it even. And young women don't think you're safe from the pressure either. Our culture is filled with churches like the church in Pergamum that are compromising with the world. Just last week, a pastor online posted a tweet calling women, it might have been even directed to Christian women, uh, to dress modestly, to not wear skin-tight clothing, and to post pictures and videos online showing the bodies, which it sounds like a reasonable request. It sounds like a reasonable thing to say. And the backlash she received was like a tidal wave, not just from feminists outside the church, but also from men and women who profess to be in the church. And they even sent him pictures and videos right there in the thread I mean, it would be easy for a child to see even. It is just saturated in our culture, online, social media, these things. If, if you have that, I know you're being exposed to it. There's just no way you're not being exposed to it. But uh, these, these men and women who profess to belong to Christ have compromised with the world, and they're wanting to teach everyone, other Christians and those outside the church, that sexual immorality, even if it's just in the way of dressing immodest, immodestly, is fine and okay for a Christian. It's just, where do they get that from? The problem is that much of the church here today is compromised. And the greatest threats against the church come from within it. Think of those verses that we read earlier from Second Peter and First Timothy and Acts 20. All the threats ultimately were from within the church, from teaching that came from the church. If you, again, if you were to look at that Twitter um, thread, a lot of the people that were attacking this man and <coughs> calling him all sorts of things and then trying to entice him, I guess, into, or just taunt him with pictures were people who professed to be Christian. The church ends up compromising and then gets polluted and permits lawlessness and enjoys lawlessness. The pattern is not new. This is how Satan often attacks the church from within. And part of the instruction here is that the church should fear the sword of Christ more than they fear the sword of Rome. Much more than the beast. The threat to the church from outside, of course, is real and dangerous. We were talking about that in our small group. I mean, the, the, you know, the state could come in and try to shut the church down and, and punish with violence those who try to meet. That could happen. But even that sort of persecution is not as dangerous as the sort of threat that comes into a church then pollutes and poisons the Christianity and then turns what should be the faith once and for all delivered to the saints into this unrecognizable deformed monster that doesn't give glory to Christ because then it has people believing that they're Christian and they're not and they end up spending an eternity in hell going into that situation going before the Lord thinking that they were in fact known of the Lord but the worst anything from outside the church can do is they could just harm the body but we already know what happens then, right? Because the second death can't harm us. We learned about that in the last uh, section that we were in. We reign with Christ, uh, you know, through the millennium even. And so we shouldn't underestimate the danger from without, but the danger that comes to us from within the church when the world infiltrates the church and the Satan attacks from within, that is a far more dangerous thing. But thankfully, what this passage is showing us is that Christ won't allow it to go on forever. He comes with a sword in his mouth. And again, that might look like 
causing the person who has compromised to be aware of that, see that, repent, and then make good decisions, make decisions that will glorify Christ, make choices that will glorify Christ, or it just might be something that people ignore. And that's a hardening of their heart. And they go on into you know, further disobedience. And eventually that ends up in eternal death. Then we have the familiar frame, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This instruction is for more than just Pergamum. And then he comes, reward mentioned, and it's two things. The hidden mana and the white stone with a new name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. The mana doesn't seem too difficult to understand, or the mana and mana. It should bring to memory the provision that God had for Israel in the wilderness. He cared for them, saving them essentially. And if you remember, some of that bread, that mana, was hidden in the ark as a lasting testimony to God's provision of salvation. And the mana served as a type of Christ. We read that in John 6 when Jesus says that people who would follow him must eat his flesh and drink his blood, meaning that it's Christ who provides salvation for us. So the church who heeds these warnings, who is not contributing to the compromise or repents from it, by grace they are conquering through Christ and they will continue to feed on Christ as it were. The stone, though, that's a little bit more complex. It's not so easy. There are all kinds of options listed for understanding what this is, from a callback to the stones in the ephod or ephod of Aaron to a form of court justice in the era. What they would say, there's two kinds of stones, like a black stone and a white stone. And you would go before the court, the judge. And if the judge declared you to be um, not guilty, he would throw white stones towards you. If he declared you to be guilty, he would throw black stones. Some people think it's in reference to that. Others, you know, others note simply that the color white is significant, especially in Revelation, signifying purity and justification and righteousness. Uh, the name being written in a new name, those are both ways of speaking about ownership, that God owns us, he has purchased us, we are his inheritance as well. Others speak of the contrasting, contrasting the mark of the beast and its correlation to the seal of God that we'll read about later and that the stone, the new name, and the written on it correlate to that name of um, God being written on believers. That's possible. And in fact, I think there's truth in all of those statements and all those views, but I found a lot to appreciate with how Joel Beakey viewed it. He draws from a lot of other, um, those views and sums them up into four categories. I sum up those four categories in one large umbrella even, that this white stone is basically signifying every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But if you give, let me give you these four categories from Beaky, and I'll be brief with them, much briefer than he was, and we'll, we'll close with this. So number one, it represents our justification. The stone is a declaration of the reality that we have been declared righteous. It's a symbol of the work of regeneration that has been applied to us and worked in us. It's a recognition that we are united to Christ through the covenant of grace, having all our hope resting in Christ. Secondly, it's a sanctifying grace. A stone is a reminder that the Spirit is working in us to conform us to Christ, right? Because why? Because look, we haven't compromised. <laughs> and if we have compromised, we repented. And so that here's this stone now. It's, it's mem- reminding us of sanctifying grace. We aren't compromising with the world, and we do. We turn from them and look to Christ. Thirdly, it represents victory and honor. Not everyone has this white stone. It's given to those who conquer in Christ. It's not something that's deserved or earned. It's given to us based on the merits of Christ, and it symbolizes the reality that we aren't under judgment any longer. That in Christ, we're victorious. We have honor that's given to Christ. And we haven't defiled ourselves like others that do, and who's the, who Christ is coming to make war on. And then fourthly and last, it's 
representative of our, representative of our personal communion or fellowship with Christ. Jesus knows his sheep and he calls them by name. It's indicative of the intimacy that we have within the Godhead, that we're able to share in the, in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from all eternity, that they've known eternally. And not, you know, everyone has it. Again, it, it, it speaks to the uniqueness, the, the, the setting apart that we have with Christ and God rather than being in the world. And so the irony of the church, like the one in Pergamum, is that compromise with the world is always a means of finding pleasure and joy and fulfillment. But it's finding those things in the wrong thing, in sin, in lawlessness, in transgression. And eventually it leads to death. It will never satisfy. But true joy and hope is found in Christ. It's found in you know, taking possession of that white stone, if we could say it like that. He, he, Jesus gives us what we won't find in anything else. His glory is at stake, and he won't ever let a person find true joy and peace and hope in something other than him. It'll always be an idol and never the true thing. So don't waste your time with a counterfeit. Don't waste your time with the world. Don't waste your time with compromise. Look to Christ and find that hidden mana. Let's pray, and if you have any questions, we can deal with those. God in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we know how susceptible to compromise we can be um that if not from a work of your grace that we would probably desire compromise and desire our flesh or i know that i'm not above that lord and we pray for a greater holiness we pray that you would turn us away from compromise we pray that you would help us to not be influenced by the pagan culture around us um, the even though the throne of Satan is in some way present among us. Now we know that his throne is not greater than yours, Lord. And so remind us that you are our hope and our confidence. Help us, Lord, to be holy for you are holy. Guide us into all truth. And may your word convict us and bring us joy and peace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions or comments? Okay.